Our scripture text this morning is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Most of us know, I think, probably the first person that talked to us about the birds and the bees, the first person who spoke to you about the nature of sex. Um, Might have been a parent, might have been a a sibling, might have been some friend uh, down the road. For me, it was somebody that was my age, much more confident and just as stupid as I was. Um, but, but sadly, the church often doesn't speak to these issues, and I want to change that today. Um, you know, one of the greatest blessings that God has given to us is this gift of intimacy, our sexuality within the context of marriage. He, he's given it to us as a means of grace, that we would uh, grow in our love for each other, our commitment, our zeal, our, our satisfaction. And yet, I think you know, sadly, Uh, that it is usually attended with great confusion, uh, much conflict, and often not a small amount of chaos associated with it. I I think it's obvious that we need to speak about it. We are a culture that is oversexed and yet undersatisfied. And so it's important to address these things. Now, there's no small amount of material on the how-to of sex, Uh, But there seems to be a great need for wisdom on the why. Why has God given us this gift of intimacy? And thankfully, God has spoken to us about it. I mean, you you heard it read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, in in 1 Corinthians, it's actually the largest passage on marriage in the Bible. Now, in the first half of 1 Corinthians, uh, remember now, it was a letter from Corinth to Paul and a group of people brought it over. In the first six chapters, he speaks about all the conflict that they were having in the church. And Paul addresses those things. And then in chapter 7, he pivots, and he begins to speak about those things that they were asking about. That's why it says in verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So now Paul's going to begin from chapter 7 on to the end of the book. He's going to speak about the issues that they raised up. We need your wisdom on these issues. We want you to speak about these issues. He's going to talk about marital intimacy, which we'll cover today. He'll be talking about singleness and liberty, spiritual gifts and money. But the first thing he starts out with is marital intimacy and marriage. And what we find out is that really the problems they were having not unlike ours at all. In fact, they were having issues where uh, in the church you had a spouse who was a believer, and then you had another spouse that wasn't. What do we do with that? They're unequally yoked. Or, or one's married, but she comes to faith and he deserts her. What do I do? Do I divorce him? Do I remain with him? What about the kids? And then the promiscuity itself in the church, how do we handle that? 
So we find that our problems in the 21st century are not unique to us. It's fundamental to who we are, the struggles that we have in life. So what Paul's going to do here is he's going to give us a robust theology of intimacy. He's going to help us understand the why of it all rather than the how of it all. So what I want to do is give you five aspects that I think are contained in the text on the nature of what ought to be and why we are to be intimate husband and wife. I can't speak to all of it. Um, I'm going to try to speak to the, the parts in the text and, and hopefully make application for your own souls. So the first aspect, the first one would simply be that God has given us sexual intimacy uh, by his design. It is by his design. Now, let me explain why I start that way, because it seems obvious, but maybe not so. Because if you look in the first verse, he says, uh, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, you could just read that and walk away and think, well, abstention or celibacy is the way to go. Maybe what Paul's saying is that we should be celibate. Definitely prior to, but even involved in marriage. And if you were to think that way, you're running too quickly from the text. Remember now the context. Paul is addressing these letters. So is he really saying celibacy is better? Or is he bringing up the question that they asked, and now he's going to answer it? And that's what I think is happening. I think he's saying, this is what you asked about. <clears throat> is celibacy better? Their understanding of the Corinthian culture, which was a very decadent culture, it would make us blush in our culture. As, as decadent as you feel America may be right now, they would have surpassed us. And, and so they're asking, hey, maybe we should just turn away from the whole thing. Maybe what God is really honored by is purity, which would be abstention from sex. And really what Paul is dealing with is there's two issues on the table here. <clears throat> we didn't read chapter 6, but in chapter 6, Paul is dealing with an oversex culture, this idea of liberty with sex, that, that God is concerned with the inner spiritual life of the person, and his body is just a shell, it's a tent. It's no big deal. You can do anything you want with the body as long as the spiritual life and the spiritual, the inner man was to be pure. You can imagine how this would open up a culture to all kinds of sexual sin. But Paul said in chapter 6, that's not the case. Your body matters. Your body is part of God's created order. Jesus took a body. He died in a body. He was raised in a body. He ascended to heaven in a body. He's going to return in a body. And our bodies are important to God. And that's why he says in 1 Corinthians 6 that to, be, uh, to have sex with a prostitute is to become one flesh with her. The, the body and the soul, we are one. We are not a dichotomy. We are one, body and soul together. But what he's dealing with here in chapter 7 is looking more at an ascetic view, that if there is no sex in heaven, and if our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, then maybe we shouldn't even have sex, even in marriage. When you become a Christian, maybe you ought to live the celibate life. And this is really the view that has locked itself in the church. Uh, from the monastic period of the third century, we began thinking it would be better to come out of society, out of decadence, because removing yourself from outward sin is going to somehow lead to inward purity. Not the case. It locked itself in with the vow of celibacy that Roman Catholic priests take, that it's holier to not be married and even engage in sex. Even my own grandparents were raised with the understanding 
that intimacy was simply for the purpose of procreation. And to enjoy it would be something to confess. Kind of a misread of Psalm 51. You know, in sin I was conceived. Now we've swung back all the other way, no doubt about that, but Paul's trying to give us a reminder that no, God has designed, God has designed for us to engage in intimacy within the context of marriage. Now have you ever thought about what God thinks on sex? I mean, I know you may think and have ideas about it, but have you ever thought, well, what does God think about it? I mean, God did create it. And would his view alter your view? Because most of us tend to still fall into two ruts. The one rut is, you know what? God's much more lenient than we are. And, you know, it it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. I, I know many people that will espouse Christianity and that will preach Christianity and feel that, you know what, what we do with our bodies is not as important as what we understand with our head and our heart. 26% of evangelicals would say that premarital sex is okay. So some of us go down the rut of liberty. Others are still stuck in the rut of it's kind of a profane part of our base nature. We have to do it for the continuation of the human race, but you know what? We think it's probably better to pray than to make love. And so we just still tend to put the spiritual principles up there higher than the physical. I think another issue that's come up in our own day is this idea that sexuality is really a place of self-fulfillment or self-expression. Hey, this is who I am, and I get to do what I want with whom I want whenever I want. Well, Paul's introducing a Christian ethic. He's saying God has given to the church a gift, and this gift is intimacy. Uh, It's a gift that is to be enjoyed. Now, we've just come out of Ecclesiastes. We live in a twisted and tortured world. We know that things are not working well. And yet in the midst of the torturedness of this creation, of which he will redeem the whole mess, he has given to us gifts, gifts of food to enjoy. Remember, enjoy the food you eat, enjoy the drink you have, enjoy the work that you have, and even says enjoy the spouse that you have. That we ought to be grateful to God for this gift, this gift of intimacy. But too many times, you know, Paul dealt with this too in the first century and first Timothy chapter 4, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage. Why? To abstain from sex. Uh, They require abstinence from food that that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, nothing to be rejected. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Notice Paul's dealing with the same thing, and he calls it the teaching of demons. Receive the gift of intimacy in the context of marriage for joy. I love what one author said. He wrote, uh, This unabashed reveling in creatureliness must not be cramped by thoughts that it is all somehow beneath our dignity and that we would be better praying than making love. For this is a false dichotomy that must be banished forever. We do not need to sanctify an entirely natural act by having simultaneous spiritual thoughts about God while in our spouse's arms. Passionate love-making is part of God's given natural order of things. So we want to thank God for it. 
God has given to us this gift, and we ought to be grateful and enjoy it. That's the first that God has designed it. So avoid the two ruts of asceticism or excess liberty. Now, secondly, God has um, sexual intimacy is um, wow. If I'm stuck on the second one, uh, sexual intimacy is a covenant. It's to be engaged in a covenant. And look with me in verse two. That's what happens when you don't have notes up here. You find out when I've lost my train of thought. In verse 2 he says, But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now Paul's not uh, conceding. He's not giving sex as a concession because of the immorality of a culture. You see each woman has to have a husband, a husband has to have a wife. He's speaking about a covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a promise. It's a promise to have and to hold, to hold fast. A covenant is a promise to share life. It's an exclusive union. There are no secondary loyalties. It's a primary loyalty to one person. A covenant is where you join together. Remember, the two will become one flesh. You join together at a personal, a spiritual, a physical, and a financial level. It's a sharing of life that God has designed this kind of intimacy, this kind of vulnerability to take place where it has been established in the context of I promise to be with you till death do us part. Because it's in that kind of environment that vulnerability and transparency can take place. If there isn't that commitment, if you divorce responsibility from privilege, then you're opening up yourself to sexual abuse, to threat, to intimidation. You know, C.S. Lewis kind of worded it this way. He said to take intimacy outside of the promise of a covenant would be like to eat food, but not to swallow it and to digest it. You don't eat the food just to gather the taste of it. You eat the food to be nourished by it, to be helped by it, to be strengthened by it. So you don't eat it and spit it back out. And so to separate the two would be to run contrary to God's purposes. Now you may ask, well, why does it have to be in a covenant? Well, why can't I just have sex with whom I want to have sex? Well, remember this, and we have saw this back in Ephesians 5, our marriages are to be reflective of the covenantal love that God has, not just with himself, but with us. You see the covenantal love that God has for his people by his faithfulness, his self-giving, his commitment, his willingness to sacrifice for us. And our marriages are to be like that. They're to be marked by that commitment till death do us part. Because we are like a microcosm of the triune God's love for his people. And so our marriages and the way that we are intimately committed to one another is to be a display of God to the nations. They're to look at us and get a better picture of this is how, who God is. So uh, this sexual intimacy is for and to be taken place in the context of a government. Third, sexual intimacy is for our pleasure. It is. God has designed for us to find great joy in it. Now look with me at verse 3. In verse 3 it says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. I know that sounds almost like by obligation. It sounds clinical. But remember the context. In a Corinthian culture, the man had the privilege of finding sexual satisfaction wherever he wanted and it was usually in 
the temples with prostitution. Now the man, so the man had the privilege of finding sexual fulfillment wherever. The woman had the obligation of involving herself in intimacy, but for the purposes of procreation. So the man was known to just go out to the houses of prostitution, and there he would find whatever pleasure he wanted in whatever form or fashion he wanted. Uh, he would then come home, and he would be intimate with his wife, but he was to be intimate with his wife so as to raise an heir or raise children. What Paul's doing here is he's turning it on its head. He's saying, no, no, no. No, there is a mutual accountability. There is parity in joy. That the woman is for the man. That the woman should expect to be satisfied by the love and the care of her, of her husband. And likewise, the husband is to find his joy, his sexual fulfillment in his wife and no other. In fact, picking up the beautiful words of Proverbs, may your fountain be blessed, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always, may you ever be captivated by her love. Do you notice in 5 he says don't deprive one another? This idea of the word deprive, it, it, it means to defraud, it's a business term that when we deprive one another, we are in fact stealing the joy that, that your spouse is to give to you. Now, why would God do it this way? I mean, if you think about it for a minute, God could have created us like the kingdom of animals where sex is more of an instinctual impulse. But why would he give us this sense of, of pleasure and intimacy? Well, I think he's giving us a window to transcendence. He's giving us a window to the unique love and joy that God has within himself. In other words, when you're intimate with your spouse, there is a closeness that you feel. There is a vulnerability. There is a sense of oneness that you can't get from any other relationship. There is a sense of bonding that takes place when you're with your spouse that gives you just a glimmer of the joy and the community and the oneness that God himself experiences. It's incredible to think. No other relationship, no other experience in life leads to that kind of pleasure and oneness. Again, Lewis comments on this. He was only married two years or two plus years to his wife, Joy, an American woman. But this is what he wrote about her. And his love, he says, for those few years, she and I feasted on love, every motive it, solemn and merry, romantic and realistic, sometimes as dramatic as a thunderstorm, sometimes as comfortable as putting on your slippers. No cranny of heart or body remained unsatisfied. Has that been your experience? For many of it's, it's not. And a lot of it may do to even unequal desires. It's very normal for relationships to have one of the two has lesser desires than the other. And usually that's attended with a degree of guilt, maybe frustration. Why don't I desire like you? And it leads to conflict and consternation. How do we find harmony here? Well, remember this. The act of intimacy is not primarily an experience of getting. It's an experience of giving. It's giving of yourself for the joy of the other. And so even for the one who has perhaps less desire, it can still be seen as, a, as an act of giving uh, 
to your spouse. An act of self-giving love. Now, you may say, well, no, no, no. If it's not full-on passion, if you're not fully engaged, it's not worth it. Well, hold it now. That's not the nature of a gift. I mean, it can be very legitimate as an act of self-giving love to the other. I mean, our joy in intimacy is to be bound up in the joy of the other. Otherwise, it's a very selfish act. It's just coming to take. But our joy in intimacy ought to be bound up in making sure that the other is full of joy. Fourth, the fourth aspect of intimacy. Aren't you glad you're not having to preach this and you can just listen to it? I was exhausted before I even started. Wait till me after three services. It'll be so twisted by the third service, I won't know it's coming out. Uh, sexual intimacy is given to us for companionship. You see this in verse 4. Look at it with me. It says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do you, do you hear the mutual accountability there? That she has authority? There's mutual submission here. And God has designed intimacy to be uh, to be uh, that mutual submission is what forges you into oneness. How God has designed this oneness is interesting. There is parity between the man and the woman, between the husband and the wife, between male and female. There's parity. The woman is not property to be had, but she is a co-equal. She's a partner in intimacy. There's parity, but there's diversity. It's obvious to all of the biological differences to show the diversity and how the two become one. Now, in male and male, and female and female, you don't have oneness, you have sameness. That's not what God has created. He's created for oneness. Oneness is the diversity and the parity, not sameness. Now, this oneness is achieved through the joining of bodies. He has involved our bodies in it, but not just bodies, bodies and souls. But even in, the in, even in the act of intimacy, the interweaving of your bodies is to represent what's happening, the interweaving of your souls. The, 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 there's, the, there's a coming together where you become one. This is the idea. In fact, uh, Jonathan Edwards, you know, you know, the Puritans wrote wonderful things about human sexuality and about intimacy. You know, I've quoted before, but I just absolutely love the quote, H.L. Mencken, which is no friend of Christianity. It's, he defined Puritanism this way. He says, uh, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. You know, the Puritans are just seen as anti-God, anti, or not anti-God, anti-sex, anti-joy, and they're not at all. Listen to what Edward said. The Christian idea of marriage, this is from the 18th century. I mean, they really had it down cold. The Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words, that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism. For that is what the words one flesh would be in modern English. And Christians believe that when he said this, he was not expressing sentiment, but stating a fact. Just as one is stating a fact when one says that a lock and its key are one mechanism, or that a violin and bow are one musical instrument. The inventor of the human machine was telling us, that its two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on a sexual level, but totally combined. 
This is the idea that intimacy leads to a growing oneness. Have you experienced a growing oneness over the years of marriage? There ought to be a merging of lives through regular practice of intimacy. Now, sadly, many of us perhaps aren't any further than we were when we started. There are threats to this oneness. There are ways that can thwart the oneness that the Spirit of God seeks to bring through our marital intimacy. Uh, one of those ways is just emotional distance. I mean, if there's anger, if there's bitterness, if there's resentment, unreconciled conflict, all these things will thwart the oneness that is to take place through our intimacy. Selfishness in life, selfishness in bed, these things will thwart oneness. A tender-hearted, vulnerable, transparent communication is essential. One author described the difference between men and women this way. He says, generally speaking, a man finds intimacy and acceptance through sex, while a woman needs to first experience intimacy and acceptance before she can be prepared to enjoy sex. So this is a threat, particularly for men. For men, it's much more physicality. For a woman, it's much more emotional. So for a oneness to be achieved, both have to be engaged. Another threat is just straight-on abuse. Many women speak to sexual intimidation or abuse or carelessness by their husbands. Many women, and I lament that these verses that I'm preaching on have been used as a tool to manipulate a woman, to almost demand, as opposed to reading it with love and protection in mind, it's used as a tool to increase frequency in sex. This is, this is great shame. I'm, I lament that when God's word is used to tear down rather than build up. Uh, another threat is just uh, the manipulation that we can do with our bodies. I mean, you can, male or female, you can use your bodies to reward good behavior or to punish bad behavior. You can manipulate, you can control with it. And this will thwart uh, oneness. So, by the way, will pornography and, and acts of self-sex. That also thwarts a oneness. That, that the two ought to become one. This might be a point of confession for you. Uh, we prayed before the service that, you know, when we have a discussion like this, a sermon like this, what tends to come up in our minds is all of our past sexual sins, our sexual struggles. Uh, let this be a, a step forward that we begin to speak about these things. Will it be awkward? I would assuredly think so. But will it be redemptive? Will it be, will it be helpful? I believe it will. It might be a point of confessing selfishness or arrogance or past sins that continue or asking for prayer, asking for help. Yeah, this is where I'm struggling. Okay, the, the fifth and the final aspect of um, our, our intimacy with our spouses would be it's a protection against further sin. Oh, look at verse 5 with me. In 5, he says, do not deprive one another except by perhaps agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, what he's saying here is he's saying that regular practice of intimacy, when he says don't deprive each other, uh, that's a, the verb tense indicates that you're, you're regularly engaging in intimacy at some level. And he's saying, don't deprive yourselves. Don't cease from having intimacy, whether it's over some 
you know, false spirituality or you're mad or you're angry or you're punishing. Don't deprive one another. Now, he does say there, there is a reason to do it, he says, but it's by mutual agreement. So it's not unilaterally decided. It's not one of the spouses saying, no, we're going to have a season of prayer. We're not going to have it for a year. It's, not, it's mutual agreement. He says for a limited time, limited time. There's a certain duration to it. It's not to keep going on. And it's for spiritual purposes. It's for the purpose of prayer, to, to repurpose the time and the effort to pray. Now, I know in your mind you're thinking, who in the world stops having sex for prayer? Well, let me introduce the idea to you, maybe using the analogy of fasting. We fast, we go without food. Food is good. God has given it to us. He's told us to enjoy it. But for a season, we do it each month. We fast, we go without food. Why? Just to be hungry? No. We want to remind ourselves of our creatureliness. We want to remind ourselves of our dependence. We want to remind ourselves, you know what? We aren't as great as we think. We can't even go a day without eating. Sure, we need God. And God's the one who has to ultimately feed us. God is the only one who can satisfy us. Well, it's the same thing with having intimacy. You know, abstaining from intimacy with your spouse for a season of time for the purpose of prayer, what you're reminding yourself is sex is not ultimate, that God is ultimate. The one who gave us the gift of sex is greater than the gift itself, and it's a reminder of that. And it also reminds us of the joy that we have in it. So there is a reason to pray. Now, now what he says is, but only for a time, because Satan will seek to tempt you. Listen, we're easily given over to lusts. And when lusts get a hold of you, as one author said, God seems less real. We begin to substitute with counterfeits. And these counterfeits make great promises of pleasure. You have control. You get the pleasure. But they never, they never really come through on their promises. So just for a season for prayer, now, remember, Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil, and one of the works of the devil is sexual temptation to sin. He has given to us this idea, don't deprive yourselves. In other words, be engaged regularly with your spouse for your personal and marital good, but not just your personal and marital good, the public good. You know the public, when our marriages are healthy, when we are sexually satisfied, happy with our spouses, society profits. Why? Less divorce, less adultery, less sexual sin, less broken homes. Healthy families usually lead to healthy societies. There is a public good involved. But I want you to notice what's kind of implied in this fifth verse is that you are praying with your wife. Do you pray with your wife? Do you regularly pray together with your husband. Your husband doesn't always need to lead and say, we need to pray tonight. Ladies, you can say, hey, let's pray tonight. You know, th this idea of praying, if he's saying to abstain from intimacy for the purposes of prayer, the assumption is you're praying together. I, I would encourage you to consider this. I would encourage you to consider praying about the nature of your own enjoyment of one another. Are you happy with me? Am I serving you well? praying together that you would find, and Carol and I pray that way. We always pray this prayer. God, only give us eyes for each other. Just give us eyes for each other. Let us serve each other well. We, we pray for our sexuality. We pray for our purity. 
There's nothing wrong with that. God's given it to us. We appeal to the creator of the gift itself for grace, both in enjoying it and walking it out well. And I only share that with you as an example of, of what can be done. So, so we pray together. We may confess. You know, this might be a time for you to confess to one another. You have been selfish. You have been ignoring the needs of the other. But, but appeal to God that, you're, that the gift that he has given to you, that you are to steward, you would steward well. And as I said, you know, there's plenty of material out there on the how-to of sexuality. There isn't a lot on the why. And I've just given you five reasons for the why. Why has God designed it for us? He has, design, he has designed it for our good. He's des, it's his design. Uh, he has designed it to be engaged in the context of a covenant, a promise to have and to hold and to hold fast. He's designed it for our pleasure. He's given it to us for companionship and for protection. So may I uh, charge you. Now, again, I know this is going to raise up all kinds of um, perhaps past sins. Uh, maybe you've already been forgiven of those. If you have, then rest in the forgiveness that you've been given. Don't bring them back up to punish yourself for past sins. Enjoy the path of repentance that leads to forgiveness. Uh, but if this does raise up issues, I, I want to encourage you to prayerfully speak with your spouse about this. We display God's glory through our happiness in marriage. May we display it well. Let's take a moment and just ask God for grace. What are we going to do with this? Do not be the one who hears and does not do and thus becomes like a man who looks in the mirror and as soon as he walks away, he forgets what he's seen. Then I'll pray for us in just a moment.